Welcome back to the Baked and Awake podcast. Today, we resume our reading of The Smoky God. Part two of our reading begins at part three of Olaf Janssen's story. We rejoin Olaf and his father on their small fishing sloop, having just survived a terrible storm at the conclusion of our last reading. Part 3. Beyond the North Wind I tried to forget my thirst by busying myself with bringing up some food in an empty vessel from the hold. Reaching over the side rail, I filled the vessel with water for the purpose of laving my hands and face. To my astonishment, when the water came in contact with my lips, I could taste no salt. I was startled by the discovery. Father, I fairly gasped. The water! The water! It is fresh! What, Olaf? exclaimed my father, glancing hastily around. Surely you are mistaken. There is no land. You are going mad. But taste it, I cried. And thus, we made the discovery that the water was indeed fresh. Absolutely so. Without the least briny taste or even the suspicion of a salty flavor. We forthwith filled our two remaining water casks, and my father declared it was a heavenly dispensation of mercy from the gods Odin and Thor. We were almost beside ourselves with joy, but hunger bade us end our enforced fast. Now that we had found fresh water in the open sea, what might we not expect in this strange latitude where ship had never before sailed and the splash of an oar had never been heard? We had scarcely appeased our hunger when a breeze began filling the idle sails, and, glancing at the compass, we found the northern point pressing hard against the glass. In response to my surprise, my father said, I have heard of this before. It is what they call the dipping of the needle. We loosened the compass and turned it at right angles with the surface of the sea before its point would free itself from the glass and point according to unmolested attraction. It shifted uneasily and seemed as unsteady as a drunken man, but finally pointed a course. Before this, we thought the wind was carrying us north by northwest, but with the needle free, we discovered, if it could be relied upon, that we were sailing slightly north by northeast. Our course, however, was ever tending northward. The sea was serenely smooth, with hardly a choppy wave, and the wind brisk and exhilarating. The sun's rays, while striking us aslant, furnished tranquil warmth. And thus, time wore on, day after day. We found from the record in our logbook we had been sailing eleven days since the storm in the open sea. 
by strictest economy, our food was holding out fairly well, but beginning to run low. In the meantime, one of our casks of water had been exhausted. And my father said, we will fill it again. But, to our dismay, we found the water was now as salt as in the region of the Lofoden Islands off the coast of Norway. This necessitated our being extremely careful of the remaining cask. I found myself wanting to sleep much of the time. Whether it was the effect of the exciting experience of sailing into unknown waters, or the relaxation from the awful excitement incident to our adventure in a storm at sea, or due to want of food, I could not say. I frequently lay down on the bunker of our little sloop, and I looked far up into the blue dome of the sky, and notwithstanding the sun was shining far away in the east, I always saw a single star overhead. For several days, when I looked for this star, it was always there directly above us. It was now, according to our reckoning, about the 1st of August. The sun was high in the heavens, and was so bright that I could no longer see the lone star that had attracted my attention a few days earlier. One day about this time, my father startled me by calling my attention to a novel sight far in front of us, almost at the horizon. It is a mock sun, exclaimed my father. I have read of them. It is called a reflection, or mirage. It will soon pass away. But this dull red, false sun, as we supposed it to be, did not pass away for several hours. While we were unconscious of its emitting any rays of light, still there was no time thereafter when we could not sweep the horizon and locate the illumination of the so-called false sun, during a period of at least 12 hours out of every 24. Clouds and mist would at times, almost but never entirely hide its location. Gradually, it seemed to climb higher in the horizon of the uncertain purple sky as we advanced. It could hardly be said to resemble the sun, except in its circular shape. And when not obscured by clouds or the ocean mists, it had a hazy red, bronzed appearance, which would change to a white, like a luminous cloud, as if reflecting some greater light beyond. We finally agreed in our discussion of this smoky, furnace-colored sun that, whatever the cause of the phenomenon, it was not a reflection of our sun, but a planet of some sort, a reality. One day, soon after this, I felt exceedingly drowsy and fell into a sound sleep. It seemed that I was almost immediately aroused by my father's vigorous shaking of me by the shoulder and saying, Olaf, waken, there is land in sight. I sprang to my feet and, oh, joy unspeakable. There, far in the distance, yet directly in our path, were lands jutting boldly into the sea. The shoreline stretched far away to the right of us, 
as far as the eye could see, and all along the sandy beach were waves breaking into choppy foam, receding, then going forward again, ever chanting in the monotonous thundertones the song of the deep. The banks were covered with trees and vegetation. I cannot express my feeling of exultation at this discovery. My father stood motionless, with his hand on the tiller, looking straight ahead, pouring out his heart in thankful prayer and thanksgiving to the gods Odin and Thor. In the meantime, a net, which we found in the stowage, had been cast, and we caught a few fish that materially added to our dwindling stock of provisions. The compass, which we had fastened back in its place in fear of another storm, was still pointing due north and moving on its pivot, just as it had in Stockholm. The dipping of the needle had ceased. What could this mean? Then, too, our many days of sailing had certainly carried us far past the North Pole, and yet the needle continued to point north. We were sorely perplexed, for surely our direction was now south. We sailed for three days along the shoreline, then came to the mouth of fjord or river of immense size. It seemed more like a great bay, and into this we turned our fishing craft the direction being slightly northeast of south. By the assistance of a fretful wind that came to our aid about 12 hours out of every 24, we continued to make our way inland into what afterward proved to be a mighty river, and which we learned was called by the inhabitants Hidekel. We continued our journey for 10 days thereafter, and found we had fortunately attained a distance inland where ocean tides no longer affected the water, which had become fresh. This discovery came none too soon, for our remaining cask of water was well nigh exhausted. We lost no time in replenishing our casks and continued to sail farther up the river when the wind was favorable. Along the banks, great forests Miles in extent could be seen stretching away on the shoreline. The trees were of enormous size. We landed after anchoring near a sandy beach and waded ashore and were rewarded by finding a quantity of nuts that were very palatable and satisfying to hunger. A welcome change from the monotony of our stock of provisions. It was about the 1st of September, over five months we calculated, since our leave-taking from Stockholm. Suddenly, we were frightened almost out of our wits by hearing in the far distance the singing of people. Very soon thereafter, we discovered a huge ship gliding down the river directly toward us. Those aboard were singing in one mighty chorus that, echoing from bank to bank, sounded like a thousand voices filling the whole universe with quivering melody. The accompaniment 
was played on stringed instruments, not unlike our harps. It was a larger ship than any we had ever seen, and was differently constructed. At this particular time our sloop was becalmed, and not far from the shore. The bank of the river, covered with mammoth trees, rose up several hundred feet in beautiful fashion. We seemed to be on the edge of some primeval forest that doubtless stretched far inland. The immense craft paused, and almost immediately a boat was lowered, and six men of gigantic stature rowed to our little fishing sloop. They spoke to us in a strange language. We knew from their manner, however, that they were not unfriendly. They talked a great deal among themselves, and one of them laughed immoderately, as though in finding us a queer discovery had been made. One of them spied our compass, and it seemed to interest them more than any other part of our sloop. Finally, the leader motioned as if to ask whether we were willing to leave our craft to go on board their ship. What say you, my son? asked my father. They cannot do any more than kill us. They seem to be kindly disposed, I replied. Although what terrible giants. They must be the select six of the kingdom's crack regiment. Just look at their great size. We may as go we may as well go willingly as be taken by force, said my father, smiling for they are certainly able to capture us. Thereupon he made known, by signs, that we were ready to accompany them. Within a few minutes, we were on board the ship, and half an hour later our little fishing craft had been lifted bodily out of the water by a strange sort of hook and tackle, and set on board as a curiosity. There were several hundred people on board this to us, Mammoth Ship, which we discovered was called the Naz, meaning, as we afterward learned, pleasure, or to give a more proper interpretation, pleasure excursion, ship. If my father and I were curiously observed by the ship's occupants, this strange race of giants offered us an equal amount of wonderment. There was not a single man aboard who would not have measured fully twelve feet in height. They all wore full beards, not particularly long, but seemingly short-cropped. They had mild and beautiful faces, exceedingly fair, with ruddy complexions. The hair and beard of some were black, others sandy, and still others yellow. The captain as we designated the dignitary in command of the great vessel, was fully a head taller than any of his companions. The women averaged from ten to eleven feet in height. Their features were especially regular and refined, while their complexion was of a most delicate tint, heightened by a healthful glow. Both men and women seemed to possess that particular case of manner, which we deem a sign of good breeding, and, notwithstanding their huge statures, there was nothing about them suggesting awkwardness. 
as I was a lad in only my 19th year, I was doubtless looked upon as a true Tom Thumb. My father's six feet three did not lift the top of his head above the waistline of these people. Each one seemed to vie with the others in extending courtesies and showing kindness to us. But all laughed heartily, I remember, when they had to improvise chairs for my father and myself to sit at a table. They were richly attired in a costume peculiar to themselves and very attractive. The men were clothed in handsomely embroidered tunics of silk and satin and belted at the waist. They wore knee breeches and stockings of a fine texture, while their feet were encased in sandals adorned with gold buckles. We early discovered that gold was one of the most common metals known and that it was used extensively in decoration. Strange as it may seem, neither my father nor myself felt the least bit of solicitude for our safety. We have come into our own, my father said to me. This is the fulfillment of the tradition told me by my father and my father's father, and still back from many generations of our race. This is, assuredly, the land beyond the north wind. We seemed to make such an impression on the party that we were given specially into the charge of one of the men, Jules Galdea, and his wife, for the purpose of being educated in their language. We, on our part, were just as eager to learn as they were to instruct. At the captain's command, the vessel was swung cleverly about and began retracing its course up the river. The machinery, while noiseless, was very powerful. The banks and trees on either side seemed to rush by. The ship's speed at times surpassed that of any railroad train on which I've ever ridden, even here in America. It was wonderful. In the meantime, cloud bank, far away in front of us. In the meantime, we had lost sight of the sun's rays, but we found a radiance within, emanating from the dull red sun, which had already attracted our attention, now giving out a white light, seemingly from a cloud bank far away in front of us. It dispensed a greater light, I should say, than two full moons on the clearest night. In twelve hours, this cloud of whiteness would pass out of sight as if eclipsed, and the twelve hours following corresponded with our night. We early learned that these strange people were worshippers of this great cloud of night. It was the smoky god of the inner world. The ship was equipped with a mode of illumination, which I now presume was electricity, but neither my father nor myself were sufficiently skilled in mechanics to understand whence came the power to operate the ship or to maintain the soft, beautiful lights that answered the same purpose of our present methods of lighting the streets of our cities, our houses, and places of business. It must be remembered, the time of which... I write was the autumn of 1829, and we of the outside surface of the earth knew nothing then, so to speak, of electricity. 
The electrically surcharged condition of the air was a constant vitalizer. I never felt better in my life than during the two years my father and I sojourned on the inside of the earth. To resume my narrative of events. The ship on which we were sailing came to a stop two days after we had been taken on board. My father said nearly as he could judge, we were directly under Stockholm or London. The city we had reached was called Jehu, signifying a seaport town. The houses were large, beautifully constructed, quite uniform in appearance, yet without sameness. The principal occupation of the people appeared to be agriculture. The hillsides were covered with vineyards, while the valleys were devoted to the growing of grain. I never saw such a display of gold. It was everywhere. The door casings were inlaid, and the tables were veneered with sheetings of gold. Domes of the public buildings were of gold. It was used most generously in the finishings of the great temples of music. Vegetation grew in lavish exuberance, and fruit of all kinds possessed the most delicate flavor. Clusters of grapes, four and five feet in length, each grape as large as an orange, and apples, larger than a man's head, typified the wonderful growth of all things on the inside of the earth. The great redwood trees of California would be considered mere underbrush compared with the giant forest trees extending for miles and miles in all directions. In many directions, along the foothills of those mountains, vast herds of cattle were seen during the day of our travel on the river. We heard much of a city called Eden, but were kept at Jehu for an entire year. By the end of that time, we had learned to speak fairly well the language of this strange race of people. Our instructors, Jules Galdea, and his wife, exhibited that was truly commendable. One day, an envoy from the ruler at Eden came to see us. And for two whole days, my father and myself were put through a series of surprising questions. They wished to know from whence we came, what sort of people dwelt without, what God we worshipped, our religious beliefs, the mode of living in our strange land, and a thousand other things. The compass which we had brought with us attracted especial attention. My father and I commented between ourselves on the fact that the compass was still pointed north, although we now knew that we had sailed over the curve or edge of the Earth's aperture and were far along southward on the inside surface of the Earth's crust, which, according to my father's estimate and my own, is about 300 miles in thickness from the inside to the outside surface. Relatively speaking, it is no thicker than an eggshell, so that there is almost as much surface on the inside as on the outside of the earth. The great luminous cloud, or ball of dull red fiery 
fire red in the mornings and the evenings, and during the day, giving off a beautiful white light, the smoky god is seemingly suspended in the center of the great vacuum, within the earth, and held to its place by the immutable law of gravitation, or a repellent atmospheric force, as the case may be. I refer to the known power that draws or repels with equal force in all directions. The base of this electrical cloud, or central luminary, the seat of the gods, is dark and non-transparent, save for innumerable small openings, seemingly in the bottom of the great support, or altar of the deity, upon which the smoky god rests. And the lights shining through these many openings twinkle at night in all their splendor, and seem to be stars, as natural as the stars we saw shining when in our home at Stockholm, excepting that they appear larger. The smoky god, therefore, with each daily revolution of the earth, appears to come up in the east and go down in the west, the same as does our sun on the external surface. In reality, the people within believe that the smoky god is the throne of their Jehovah and is stationary. The effect of night and day is therefore produced by Earth's daily rotation. We've since discovered that the language of the people of the inner world is much like Sanskrit. After we had given an account of ourselves to the emissaries from the central seat of government of the inner continent, and my father had, in his crude way, drawn maps at their request of the outside surface of the Earth, showing the divisions of land and water, and giving the name of each of the continents, large islands, and the oceans, we were taken overland to the city of Eden, in a conveyance different from anything we have in Europe or America. This vehicle was doubtless some electrical contrivance. It was noiseless, and ran on a single iron rail in perfect balance. The trip was made at a very high rate of speed. We were carried up hills and down dales, across valleys, and again along the sides of steep mountains, without any apparent attempt having been made to level the earth as we do for railroad tracks. The car seats were huge, yet comfortable affairs, and very high above the floor of the car. On the top of each car were high-geared flywheels lying on their sides, which were so automatically adjusted that, as the speed of the car increased, the speed of these flywheels geometrically increased. Jules Galdea explained to us that these revolving, fan-like wheels on top of the cars destroyed atmospheric pressure, or what is generally understood by the term gravitation. And with this force thus destroyed, or rendered nugatory, the car is as safe from falling to one side or the other from the single ray track as if it were in a vacuum. The flywheels and their rapid revolutions, destroying effectually the so-called power of gravitation, or the force of atmospheric pressure or whatever potent influence it may be that causes all unsupported things to fall downward to the Earth's surface or to the nearest point of resistance. The surprise of my father and myself was indescribable when, amid the regal magnificence of a spacious hall, 
we were finally brought before the great high priest, ruler over all the land. He was richly robed and much taller than those about him and could not have been less than 14 or 15 feet in height. The immense room in which we were received seemed finished in solid slabs of gold, thickly studded with jewels of amazing brilliancy. The city of Eden is located in what seems to be a beautiful valley. Yet, in fact, it is on the loftiest mountain plateau of the inner continent, several thousand feet higher than any portion of the surrounding country. It is the most beautiful place I have ever beheld in all my travels. In this elevated garden, all manner of fruits, vines, shrubs, trees, and flowers grow in riotous profusion. In this garden, four rivers have their source in a mighty artesian fountain. They divide and flow in four directions. This place is called by inhabitants the navel of the earth, or the beginning, the cradle of the human race. The names of the rivers are the Euphrates, the Pison, the Gihon, and the Hidikel. The unexpected awaited us in this place of beauty. In the finding of our little fishing craft, it had been brought before the high priest in perfect shape, just as it had been taken from the waters that day when it was loaded on board the ship by the people who discovered us on the river more than a year before. We were given an audience of over two hours with this great dignitary who seemed kindly disposed and considerate. He showed himself eagerly interested, asking us numerous questions and invariably regarding things about which his emissaries had failed to inquire. At the conclusion of the interview, he inquired our pleasure, asking us whether we wished to remain in his country or if we prefer, preferred to return to the outer world, providing it were possible to make a successful return trip across the frozen belt barriers that encircle both the northern and southern openings of the earth. My father replied, It would please me and my son to visit your country and see your people, your colleges and palaces of music and art, your great fields, your wonderful forests of timber. And after we have had this pleasurable privilege, we should like to try to return to our home on the outside surface of the earth. This son is my only child, and my good wife will be weary awaiting our return. I fear you can never return, replied the chief high priest, because the way is a most hazardous one. However, you shall visit the different countries with Jules Galdea as your escort, and be accorded every courtesy and kindness. Whenever you are ready to attempt a return voyage, I assure you that your boat which is here on exhibition shall be put in the waters of the river Hittichel at its mouth, and we will bid you Jehovah speed. Thus terminated our only interview with the high priest ruler of the continent. Part 4 In the underworld, we learned that the males do not marry before they are from 75 to 100 years old. 
and that the age at which women enter wedlock is only a little less, and that both men and women frequently live to be from six to eight hundred years old, and in some cases much older. During the following year, we visited many villages and towns, prominent among them being the cities of Nigi, Delphi, Hecti, and my father was called upon no less than a half dozen times to go over the maps which had been made from the rough sketches he had originally given of the divisions of land and water on the outside surface of the earth. I remember hearing my father remark that the giant race of people in the land of the Smoky God had almost as accurate an idea of the geography of the outside surface of the earth as had the average college professor in Stockholm. In our travels, we came to a forest of gigantic trees near the city of Delphi. Had the Bible said there were trees towering over 300 feet in height and more than 30 feet in diameter growing in the Garden of Eden, Ingersolls, the Tom Paines, and Voltaires would doubtless have pronounced the statement a myth. Yet this is the description of California Sequoia Gigantia. But these California giants pale into insignificance when compared with the forest Goliaths found within the continent, where abound mighty trees from 800 to 1,000 feet in height and from 100 to 120 feet in diameter. Countless in numbers, and forming forests extending hundreds of miles back from the sea. The people are exceedingly musical, and learned, to a remarkable degree, in their arts and sciences, especially geometry and astronomy. Their cities are equipped with vast palaces of music, where, not infrequently, as many as 25,000 lusty voices of this giant race swell forth in mighty choruses, the most sublime symphonies. The children are not supposed to attend institutions of learning before they are 20 years old. Then their school life begins and continues for 30 years, 10 of which are uniformly devoted by both sexes to study of music. Their principal vocations are architecture, agriculture, horticulture, the raising of vast herds of cattle, and the building of conveyances peculiar to that country for travel on land and water. By some device which I cannot explain, they hold communion with one another between the most distant parts of their country on air currents. All buildings are erected with special regard to strength, durability, beauty, and symmetry, and with a style of architecture vastly more attractive to the eye than any I have ever observed elsewhere. About three-fourths of the inner surface of the earth is land, and about one-fourth water. There are numerous rivers of tremendous size, some flowing in a northerly direction, and others southerly. Some of these rivers are 30 miles in width, and it is out of these vast waterways at the extreme northern and southern parts of the inside surface of the earth, in regions where low temperatures are experienced, that freshwater icebergs are formed. They are then pushed out to sea like huge tongues of ice, 
are the abnormal freshets of turbulent waters that, twice every year, sweep everything before them. We saw innumerable specimens of bird life no larger than those encountered in the forests of Europe or America. It is well known that during the last few years, whole species of birds have quit the earth. A writer in a recent article on this subject says, Almost every year sees the final extinction of one or more bird species. Out of 14 varieties of birds found a century since on a single island, the West Indian island of St. Thomas, eight have now to be numbered among the missing. Is it not possible that these disappearing bird species quit their habitation without and found an asylum in the within world? Whether inland, among the mountains, or along the seashore, we found bird life prolific. When they spread their great wings, some of the birds appeared to measure 30 feet from tip to tip. They are of great variety and many colors. We were permitted to climb on the edge of a rock and examine a nest of eggs. There were five in the nest, each of which was at least two feet in length and 15 inches in diameter. After we had been in the city of Hecate for about a week, Professor Galdea took us to an inlet where we saw thousands of tortoises along the sandy shore. I hesitate to state the size of these great creatures. They were from 25 to 30 feet in width and fully seven feet in height. When one of them projected its head, it had the appearance of some hideous sea monster. The strange conditions within are favorable not only for vast meadows of luxuriant grasses, forests of giant trees, and all manner of vegetation life, but wonderful animal life as well. One day, we saw a great herd of elephants. There must have been 500 of these thunder-throated monsters with their restlessly waving trunks. They were tearing huge boughs from the trees and trampling smaller growth into dust like so much hazel brush. They would average over 100 feet in length and 75 to 85 in height. It seemed as I gazed upon this wonderful herd of giant elephants that I was again living in the public library at Stockholm where I had spent much time studying the wonders of the Miocene age. I was filled with mute astonishment, and my father was speechless with awe. He held my arm with a protecting grip, as if fearful harm would overtake us. We were two atoms in this great forest, fortunately unobserved by this vast herd of elephants as they drifted on and away, following a leader as does a herd of sheep. They browsed from growing herbage, which they encountered as they traveled, and now and again shook the firmament with their deep bellowing. There's a hazy mist that goes up from the land each evening, and it invariably rains once every 24 hours. This great moisture and invigorating electrical light and warmth account perhaps for the luxurious vegetation. While the highly charged electrical air and the evenness of climatic conditions may have much to do with giant growth and longevity of all animal life. In places, the level valleys stretched away for many miles in every direction. The smoky god, in its clear white light, looked calmly down. 
there was an intoxication in the electrically supercharged air that fanned the, the cheek as softly as a vanishing whisper. Nature chanted a lullaby in the faint murmur of winds whose breath was sweet with the fragrance of bud and blossom. After having spent considerably more than a year in visiting several of the many cities of the within world and a great deal of the intervening country, and more than two years had passed since the time we picked up by the great excursion ship on the river, we decided to cast our fortunes once more upon the sea and to endeavor to regain the outside surface of the earth. We made known our wishes, and they were reluctantly but promptly followed. Our hosts gave my father, at his request, various maps showing the entire inside surface of the earth, its cities, oceans, seas, rivers, gulfs, and bays. They also generously offered to give us all the bags of gold nuggets, some of them as large as goose's eggs, that we were willing to attempt to take with us in our little fishing boat. In due time, we returned to Jehu, at which place we spent one month in fixing up and overhauling our little fishing sloop. After all was in readiness, the same ship, Naz, that originally discovered us, took us on board and sailed back to the mouth of the river Hittichel. After our giant brothers had launched our little craft for us, they were most cordially regretful at parting, and evinced much solicitude for our safety. My father swore by the gods Odin and Thor that he would surely return again within a year or two and pay them another visit, and thus we bade them adieu. We made ready and hoisted our sail, but there was little breeze. We were becalmed within an hour after our giant friends left us and started on their return trip. The winds were constantly blowing south. That is, they were blowing from northern opening of the earth toward that which we knew to be south, but which, according to our compass's pointing finger, was directly north. For three days we tried to sail and to beat against the wind, but to no avail. Whereupon my father said, My son, to return by the same route is impossible at this time of year. I wonder why we did not think of this before. We have been here almost two and a half years. Therefore, this is the season when the sun is beginning to shine in at the southern opening of the earth. The long, cold night is on in the Spitsbergen country. What shall we do? I inquired. There's only one thing we can do, my father replied, and that is to go south. Accordingly, he turned the craft about, gave it full reef, and started by the compass north, but in fact, directly south. The wind was strong. We seemed to have struck a current that was running with remarkable swiftness in the same direction. In just 40 days, we arrived at Delphi, a city we had visited in company with our guides, Jules Galdea and his wife, near the mouth of the Gihon River. Here we stopped for two days, and were most hospitably entertained by the same people who had welcomed us on our former visit. We laid in some additional provisions, and again set sail, following the needle due north. On our outward trip, 
We came through a narrow channel, which appeared to be a separating body of water between two considerable bodies of land. There was a beautiful beach to our right, and we decided to reconnoiter. Casting anchor, we waded ashore to rest up for a day before continuing the outward hazardous undertaking. We built a fire and threw on some sticks of dry driftwood. While my father was walking along the shore, I prepared a tempting repast from supplies we had provided. It was a mild, luminous light which my father said resulted from the sun shining in from the south aperture of the earth. That night we slept soundly, and awakened the next morning as refreshed as if we had been in our own beds at Stockholm. After breakfast, we started out on an inland tour of discovery, but had not gone far when we sighted some birds which we recognized at once as belonging to the penguin family. They are flightless birds, but excellent swimmers and tremendous in size, with white breast, short wings, black head, and long peaked bills. They stand fully nine feet high. They looked at us with little surprise, presently waddled, rather than walked, toward the water, and swam away in a northerly direction. The events that occurred during the following hundred or more days beggar description. We were on an open and iceless sea. The month we reckoned to be November or December, and we knew the so-called South Pole was turned towards the sun. Therefore, when passing out and away from the internal electrical light of the smoky god at its genial warmth, we would be met by the light and warmth of the sun shining in through the south opening of the earth. We were not mistaken. There were times when our little craft, driven by the wind, was continuous and persistent, shot through the waters like an arrow. Indeed, had we encountered a hidden rock or obstacle, our little vessel would have been crushed into the lindling wood. At last we were conscious that the atmosphere was growing decidedly colder, and a few days later, icebergs were sighted far to the left. My father argued, and correctly, that the winds which filled our sails came from the warm climate within. The time of year was certainly most auspicious for us to make our dash for the outside world and attempt to scud our fishing sloop through open channels of the frozen zone which surrounds the polar regions. We were soon amid the ice packs. And now our little craft got through the narrow channels and escaped being crushed, I know not. The compass behaved in the same drunken and unreliable fashion in passing over the southern curve or urge of the earth edge of the earth's shell as it had done on our inbound trip at the northern entrance. It gyrated, dipped, and seemed like a thing possessed. One day, as I was lazily looking over the sloop's side into the clear waters, my father shouted, Breakers ahead! Looking up, I saw through a lifting mist a white object that towered several hundred feet high completely shooting off our advance. We lowered sail immediately, and none too soon. In a moment, we found ourselves wedged between two monstrous icebergs. Each was crowding and grinding against its fellow mountain of ice. They were like two gods of war contending for supremacy. We were greatly alarmed. Indeed, we were between the lines of a battle royal, 
The sonorous thunder of the grinding ice was like the continued volleys of artillery. Blocks of ice larger than a house were frequently lifted up a hundred feet by the mighty force of lateral pressure. They would shudder and rock to and fro for a few seconds, then come crashing down with a deafening roar and disappear in the foaming waters. Thus, for more than two hours, the contest of icy giants continued. It seemed as if the end had come. The ice pressure was terrific, and while we were not caught in the dangerous part of the jam and were safe for the time being, yet the heaving and rending of tons of ice as it fell splashing here and there into the watery depths filled us with shaking fear. Finally, to our great joy, the grinding of the ice ceased. And within a few hours, the great mass slowly divided, as if an act of providence had been performed. Right before us lay an open channel. Should we venture with our little craft into this opening? If the pressure came on again, our little sloop as well as ourselves would be crushed into nothingness. We decided to take the chance, and accordingly hoisted our sail to a favoring breeze, and soon started out like a racehorse, running the gauntlet of this unknown, narrow channel of open water. Part 5 Among the Ice Packs for the next 45 days, our time was employed in dodging icebergs and hunting channels. Indeed, had we not been favored with a strong south wind and a small boat, I doubt if this story could ever have been given to the world. At last, there came a morning when my father said, My son, I think we are to see home. We are almost through the ice. See! The water lies open before us. However, there were a few icebergs that had floated far northward into the open water, still ahead of us on either side, stretching away for many miles. Directly in front of us, and by the compass, which had now righted itself due north, there was an open sea. What a wonderful story we have to tell the people of Stockholm, continued my father, while a look of pardonable elation lightened up his honest face. And think of the gold nuggets stowed away in the hold. I spoke kind words of praise to my father, not alone for his fortitude and endurance, but also for this courageous daring as a discoverer, and for having made the voyage that now promised a successful end. I was grateful, too, that he had gathered the wealth of gold we were carrying home. While congratulating ourselves on the goodly supply of provisions and water we still had on hand, and on the dangers we had escaped, we were startled by hearing a most terrific explosion, caused by the tearing apart of huge mountains of ice was a deafening roar like the firing of a thousand cannons. We were sailing at that time with great speed and happened to be near a monstrous iceberg, which
which to all appearances was as immovable as a rock-bound island. It seemed, however, that the iceberg had split and was breaking apart, whereupon the balance of the monster along which we were sailing was destroyed, and it began dipping from us. My father quickly anticipated that the iceberg had split and was breaking apart. My father quickly anticipated the danger before I realized its awful possibilities. The iceberg extended down into the water, many hundreds of feet, and, as it tipped over, the portion coming up out of the water caught our fishing craft like a lever on a fulcrum and threw it into the air as if it had been a football. Our boat fell back on the iceberg that by this time had changed the side next to us for the top. My father was still in the boat, having become entangled in the rigging, while I was thrown some twenty feet away. I quickly scrambled to my feet and shouted to my father, who answered, All is well. Just then, a realization dawned upon me. Horror upon horror. The blood froze in my veins. The iceberg was still in motion, and its great weight and force in toppling over would cause it to submerge temporarily. I fully realized what a sucking maelstrom it would produce amidst the worlds of water on every side. They would rush into the depression in all their fury, like white-fanged wolves eager for human prey. In this supreme moment of mental anguish, I remember glancing at our boat, which was lying on its side, wondering if it could possibly right itself, and if my father could escape. Was this the end of our struggles and adventures? Was this death? All these questions flashed through my mind in the fraction of a second, and a moment later I was engaged in a life-and-death struggle. The ponderous monolith of ice sank below the surface, and the frigid waters gurgled around me in frenzied anger. I was in a saucer, with the waters pouring in on every side. A moment more, and I lost consciousness. When I partially recovered my senses, aroused from the swoon of a half-drowned man, I found myself wet, stiff, and almost frozen, lying on the iceberg. But there was no sign of my father or of our little fishing sloop. The monster berg had recovered itself, and with its awfulness, and with its new balance, lifted its head perhaps fifty feet above the waves. The top of this island of ice was a plateau perhaps half an acre in extent. I loved my father well was grief-stricken at the awfulness of his death. I railed at fate that I, too, had not been permitted to sleep with him in the depths of the ocean. Finally, I climbed to my feed and looked about me. The purple domed sky above, the shoreless green ocean beneath, and only an occasional iceberg discernible. My heart sank in hopeless despair. 
I cautiously picked my way across the berg toward the other side, hoping that our fishing craft had righted itself. Dared I think it possible that my father still lived? It was but a ray of hope that flamed up in my heart. But the anticipation warmed my blood in my veins and started it rushing like some rare stimulant through every fiber of my body. I crept close to the precipitous side of the iceberg and peered far down, hoping, still hoping. Then I made a circle of the berg, scanning every foot of the way, and thus I kept going around and around. One part of my brain was certainly becoming maniacal, while the other part, I believe and do to this day, was perfectly rational. I was conscious of having made the circuit a dozen times, and while one part of my intelligence knew, in all reason, there was not a vestige of hope, yet some strange, fascinating aberration betwitched and compelled me to still beguile myself with expectation. The other part of my brain seemed to tell me that while there was no possibility of my father being alive, yet, if I quit making the circuit, circuitous pilgrimage, if I paused for a single moment, it would be acknowledgement of defeat. And should I do this, I felt that I should go mad. Thus, hour after hour, I walked around and around, and afraid to stop and rest, yet physically powerless to continue much longer. Oh, horror of horrors to be cast away in this wide expanse of waters without food or drink, and only a treacherous iceberg for an abiding place. My heart sank within me, and all semblance of hope was fading into black despair. Then, the hand of the Deliverer was extended, and death-like stillness of solitude, rapidly becoming unbearable, was suddenly broken by the firing of a signal gun. I looked up in startled amazement when I saw, less than half a mile away, a whaling vessel bearing down toward me with her sail full set. Evidently, my continued activity on the iceberg had attracted their attention. On drawing near, they put out a boat. Descending cautiously to the water's edge, I was rescued and a little later lifted on board the whaling ship. I found it was the Scotch whaler, the Arlington. She had cleared from Dundee in September and started immediately for the Antarctic in search of whales. The captain, Angus McPherson, seemed kindly disposed, but in matters of discipline, as I soon learned, possessed of an iron will. When I attempted to tell him that I had come from inside of the earth, the captain and mate looked at each other, shook their heads, and insisted on my being put in a bunk under strict surveillance of the ship's physician. I was very weak from want of food, and had not slept for many hours. However, after a few days, I got up one morning and dressed myself without asking permission of the physician or anyone else and told them that I was as sane as anyone. The captain sent for me, 
and again questioned me concerning where I had come from and how I came to be alone on an iceberg in the far-off Antarctic Ocean. I replied that I had just come from the inside of the earth and proceeded to tell him how my father and myself had gone in by way of Spitsbergen and come out by way of the South Pole country, whereupon I was put in irons. I afterward heard the captain tell the mate that I was as crazy as a March hare, that I must remain in confinement until I was rational enough to give a truthful account of myself. Finally, after much pleading and many promises, I was released from irons. I then and there decided to invent some story that would satisfy the captain, and again refer to my trip to the land of the Smoky God, at least until I was safe among friends. Within a fortnight, I was permitted to go about and take my place as one of the seamen. A little later, the captain asked me again for an explanation. I told him that my experience had been so horrible that I was fearful of my memory. and begged him to permit me to leave the question unanswered until some time in the future. I think you are recovering considerably, he said. You are not sane yet by a good deal. Permit me to do such work as you may assign, I replied. And if it does not compensate you sufficiently, I will pay you immediately after I reach Stockholm, to the last penny. Thus, the matter rested. On finally reaching Stockholm, as I've already related, I found that my good mother had gone to her reward more than a year before. I've also told now, later, the treachery of a relative landed me in a madhouse, where I remained for 28 years. Seemingly unending years. And still later, after my release, how I returned to the life of a fisherman, following it sedulously for 27 years. Then how I came to America, and finally to Los Angeles, California. But all this can be of little interest to the reader. Indeed, it seems to me the climax of my wonderful travels and strange adventures was reached when the Scotch sailing vessel took me from an iceberg on the Antarctic Ocean. Part 6 Conclusion In concluding this history of my adventures, I wish to state that I firmly believe science is yet in its infancy concerning the cosmology of the Earth. There is so much that is unaccounted for by the world's accepted knowledge of today, and will ever remain so until the land of the Smoky God is known and recognized by our geographers. It is the land from whence came the great logs of cedar that have been found by explorers in open waters far over the northern edge of the Earth's crust, and also the bodies of mammoths whose bones are found in vast beds on the Siberian coast. Northern explorers have done much. 
Sir John Franklin, De Haven Grinnell, Sir John Murray, Kane, Melville, Hall, Nansen, Schwatka, Greeley, Peary, Ross, Gerlach, Bernacci, Andre, Amsden, Amundsen, and others have all been striving to storm the frozen citadel of mystery. I firmly believe that Andre and two brave companions, Strindberg and Frankno, who sailed away in the balloon Orion from the northwest coast of Spitzbergen on that Sunday afternoon of July 11, 1897, are now within world, and doubtless are being entertained as my father and myself were entertained by the kind-hearted giant race inhabiting the inner Atlantic continent. Having, in my humble way, devoted years to these problems, I'm well acquainted with the accepted definitions of gravity, as well as the cause of the magnetic needle's attraction, And I am prepared to say that it is my firm belief that the magnetic needle is influenced solely by electric currents, which completely envelop the Earth like a garment. And that these electric currents, in an endless circuit, pass out of the southern ends of the Earth's cylindrical opening, diffusing and spreading themselves over all the outside surface, rushing madly on in their course toward the North Pole. while these currents seemingly dash off into space at the Earth's curve or edge, yet they drop again to the inside surface and continue their way southward along the inside of the Earth's crust toward the opening of the so-called South Pole. As to gravity, no one knows what it is, because it has not been determined whether it is atmospheric pressure that causes the apple to fall, or whether... 150 miles below the surface of the Earth, supposedly one halfway through the Earth's crust, there exists some powerful lodestone attraction that draws it. Therefore, whether the apple, when it leaves the limb of the tree, is drawn or impelled downward to the nearest point of resistance is unknown to the students of physics. Sir James Ross claimed to have discovered the magnetic pole at about 74 degrees latitude. This is wrong. The magnetic pole is exactly one-half the distance through the Earth's crust. Thus, if the Earth's crust is 300 miles in thickness, which is the distance I estimate it to be, then the magnetic pole is undoubtedly 150 miles below the surface of the Earth. It matters not where the test is made. And at this particular point, 150 miles below the surface, gravity ceases, becomes neutralized, and when we pass that point, beyond that point, on toward the inside surface of the Earth, a reverse attraction geometrically increases in power until the other 150 miles of distance is traversed, which would bring us out on the inside of the Earth. Thus, if a hole were bored down through the Earth's crust at London, Paris, New York, Chicago, or Los Angeles, 
a distance of 300 miles, it would connect the two surfaces. While the inertia and momentum of a weight dropped in from the outside surface would carry it far toward the outside surface, far, far past the magnetic center, yet before reaching the inside surface of the Earth, it would gradually diminish in speed. After passing the halfway point, finally pausing, and immediately fall back toward the outside surface, and continue thus to oscillate, like the swinging of a pendulum, with the power removed, until it would finally rest at the magnetic center, or at that particular point, exactly one-half the distance between the outside surface and the inside surface of the Earth. The gyration of the Earth in its daily act of whirling around in its spiral rotation at the rate greater than 1,000 miles every hour, or about 17 miles per second, makes of it a vast electro-generating body, a huge machine, a mighty prototype of the puny man-made dynamo, which at best is but a feeble imitation of nature's original. The valleys of this inner Atlantis continent, bordering the upper waters of the farthest north, are in season covered with the most magnificent and luxuriant flowers. Not hundreds and thousands, but millions of acres, from which the pollen or blossoms are carried far away in almost every direction by the Earth's spiral gyrations and the agitation of the wind resulting therefrom. And it is these blossoms or pollen from the vast floral meadows within that produce the colored snows of the Arctic regions that have so mystified the northern explorers. Beyond question, this new land within is the home, the cradle of the human race, and viewed from the standpoint of the discoveries made by us, must of necessity have a most important bearing on all physical, paleontological, archaeological, philological, and mythological theories of antiquity. The same idea of going back to the land of mystery, to the very beginning, to the origin of man, is found in Egyptian traditions of the earlier terrestrial regions of the gods, heroes, and men. From the historical fragments of Mantheo, fully verified by the historical records, taken from the more recent excavations of Pompeii, as well as traditions of the North American Indians. It is now one hour past midnight. The new year of 1908 is here, and this is the third day thereof. And having at last finished the record of my strange travels and adventures I wish given to the world, I am ready and even longing for the peaceful rest which I am sure will follow life's trials and vicissitudes. I am old in years, and ripe with adventures and sorrows, yet rich with the few friends I have cemented to me in my struggles to lead a just and upright life. Like a story that is well nigh told, my life is ebbing away. The presentiment is strong within me that I shall not live to see the rising of another sun. 
Thus do I conclude my message. Olaf Janssen Part 7 Authors Afterward I found much difficulty in deciphering and editing the manuscripts of Olaf Janssen. However, I've taken the liberty of reconstructing only a very few expressions. And in doing this, I have in no way changed the spirit or meaning. Otherwise, the original text has neither been added to nor taken from. It is impossible for me to express my opinion as to the value or reliability of the wonderful statements made by Olaf Janssen. The description here given of the strange lands and people visited by him, location of cities, the names and directions of rivers, and other information herein combined, conform in every way to the rough drawings given into my custody by this ancient Norseman. Which drawings together with the manuscript is my intention at some later date to give to the Smithsonian Institution to preserve for the benefit of those interested in the mysteries of the farthest north, the frozen circle of silence. It is certain that there are many things in Vedic literature. In Josephus, the Odyssey, the Iliad, Terrien de la Couperie's Early History of Chinese Civilization, Flammarion's Astronomical Myths, Lenormand's Beginnings of the History, Hesiod's Theogony, Sir John de Mondeville's Writings, and Sace's Records of the Past, that, to say the least, are strangely in harmony the seemingly incredible text found in the yellow manuscript of the old Norseman, Olaf Janssen, and now, for the first time, given to the world. <laughs>